Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Just on a personal note, everyone wants to know where, where are your grandparents from, especially in America? Like where, Because it just says something about you, whatever, what country, it's interesting. So three of my grandparents were from Russia, and, and one of them was from Italy. The, the one from Italy was from Trieste, and he, he was a Kohen, by the way. And he, at the end of his life, he traveled with a, he had a Torah scroll. He actually had two Torah scrolls. One he left with his family, and, and one he took to, to Israel with him. So I always thought to myself, I've said it, you know, a million times, three grandparents from Russia and one from Italy. And where are my grandparents from Russia? Well, two are from the Kiev area, and one of them was from the Odessa area, which is Ukraine. So now I'm wondering, am I Ukrainian? Like, I never thought of myself as Ukrainian before. And then it's been brought to my attention that when my grandfather was in Italy, Trieste, which is, you know, look at a map. Trieste is a city in Italy. It's not a question. It's right in Italy. But at that point, it was controlled by the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. So am I Ukrainian and Hungarian? Like, I, I thought I was Italian and Russian, but I might be Ukrainian and Hungarian, which is, a, in my mind, a completely different identity. I have to wrap my mind around what that means, you know, because each one of these countries has a different sort of like uh, poetic or musical or spiritual kind of like counterpart. Like I, I, there's this music playing and I don't recognize it at all. What does Ukrainian Hungarian mean, you know? So, so anyway, it, that has nothing to do with anything, but I'm just throwing it in. I was reminded of a story, one of the very first stories that I ever heard from Reb Shlomo, and, and I've never seen this printed in any of the transcripts or any of the collections of stories in the books or YouTube videos or anything like that. So, so here you go. It's a bit of a mysterious story, but not maybe not mysterious in the end. After thinking about it for about 30 years, I, I, I think that I, I got at least one level of understanding, and I'll share it with you at the end, in case we get to the end of the story and you're just sort of like scratching your head and it's like, what does that mean? So I don't remember the name of the Rebbe, but, but I'm sure it's one of the, the, the great Hasidic masters, and there was one of his Hasidim who was broke and just had nothing, and he goes up to the Rebbe and, and tells him his circumstances. And the Rebbe gives him one penny. And the, the Chassid, you know, is, isn't exactly sure, like, you know, how is this going to help him, this one penny? You know, the Rebbe assures him that, that this is what he needs. So he goes into the, the, the shoe store. His children don't have any shoes. And he, he selects some shoes and he gets to the time of having to pay for them. He takes out this penny and the, the, the owner of the store sees this penny and he, he gives it back to the chassid and tells him, you know, that the whole bill is paid and, and the chassid can't, can't believe it. It's like he's got all these shoes for his children now. And now he wants to, to buy food for the family. He goes into the grocery shop. He selects packages of food and he goes to pay and he gives this penny and the, the storekeeper gives him the penny back. 
And it's everything is paid for. And again, it's this amazing thing. He's got shoes, he's got food. He wants to buy his children clothes. He wants to buy his, his wife a new dress. He goes and he, he selects the, all these articles of clothing and the same thing happens. He gives the penny, the storekeeper gives the penny back to him and he's got all these clothes. And he goes home, this hero, this king, he's got all the needs of the family. And he goes back to the Rebbe and now he wants to thank the Rebbe so much for everything that he did for him. And he hands the Rebbe back the penny. And this is the end of the story now. The Rebbe looks at him absolutely brokenhearted. And he says, why did you give the penny back? That's, that's the end of the story. That's the end of the story. And so what does it mean? Why did you give the penny back? What does it mean? You know, we're so used to exile that all we know is exile. And if our belly is full and our rent is paid, but there's a next chapter. There's a next chapter that we're so distance from that we've forgotten it even exists. Why did you give the penny back? You know, so much of our lives is just getting back to zero. Like I'm in the red, I'm in the red. If I can just get back to zero, but what about being in the black? What about, what about just going beyond to the entirely next level? So, this now we're getting to a time of the year we're going to we're going to Purim we're going to Pesach this is when all the skies open up all of the skies into Shavuos all the skies this is this is like now the fast track where all the preparations are just like it's just for now it's just for now one of the things that Reb Shlomo we, my, my wife and I were blessed to have Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach marry us. And one of the things that he blessed us with is he said these words, he says, I'm blessing you, he says, that you should never stop asking. God is not like, God is not a person. And God is not like people. Meaning to say that with, with certain people, they're very generous to us. And, and you know, we have to have derech we have to be respectful. You know, at a certain point, we have to, we can't be just takers. We have to be givers also. And we can't just keep on going to the same well over and over again, asking, 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 asking. But that's not God. God, God is, our relationship with God is not like that. This concept, some people have this concept, God is busy. Or God is too busy for me. This is an outrage. This is, this is literally a slander against God. If anyone thinks God is too busy or God is too busy for me, or I don't want to bother God with this. You know, you know what that is? That, that, means, that means that you have no concept, no concept of his infinity. No concept of his infinity. So the, the Torah that, that Reb Shlomo mentioned in this context, it's a classic Torah. I've seen it in, in the name of the Katzka Rebbe, or, or, or his Rebbe, the Psh, right? Dealing with this snake. It's a big question about this snake. When it's time for all the curses, after the, the eating from the, the tree of knowledge, right? From the eight Sadat, there are plenty to go around, unfortunately. And the snake gets the strangest curse. The snake is, 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 is cursed to crawl on its belly and to eat the dust 
of the earth. But, you know, the Rebbe's thought about that curse, and they said, that's kind of a weird curse because there's dust everywhere. And the way Reb Shlomo put it is, it's like he was cursed to be a millionaire. Right? Wherever he's going, the snake, wherever he's going, he's got, he's got all he can eat. His whole life is an all-you-can-eat buffet. And what was the idea? So where is the curse in that? So I'll say it in the name of the Kutzka Rebbe. That God said, you know something? Don't come to me anymore. Here are all your needs. I'm done with you. Here you go. You got everything you need. Don't ask me for anything. In other words, we have to change our attitude what it means to ask from God. A lot of us, when we ask from God, we think that that that's the same as asking from another person that we've already kind of maybe used up all of our goodwill with. And so we're like a little embarrassed or a little bit shy or we don't even want to ask. But God is not a person. And the asking itself is the sign of a is the sign of closeness. It's a sign of love from our part. It's an expression that we know that you're the one who we go to with all of our needs. I'll tell you something. I have kids. And you know when we're closest, when we go through periods of, of our utmost closeness, when they're asking me for things, when they need things from me. And I'm not just talking about cash. I'm talking about like uh, advice or help with a project or something like that. And then I'm so sad in the periods when they don't ask me for anything. It's like they, they don't need me, I guess, or they, whatever it is, you know. So, so when they're asking from me, I'm not like, oh, I'm really busy or really bothering me. When they're asking from me, this is, this is when we get to be together. And this is, this is a model of how God feels when we ask of him. It's an expression in the deepest way that, that, that we want him in our lives, that, that we can't do anything without him, that we're connected in just the deepest, most beautiful way. So... How can you be the best version of yourself? I, I, I think part of it comes from identifying what, what it is that's, that's, that, that you love to do. See, every, every single person has been given, no, no two people are alike. And, and the, the Medrash talks about that, that look how different God is from human beings. Like when human beings create something, like a coin is the example they give, each coin looks the same as the other coin when you, when, you, when you mint a particular coin. But when God mints faces, so to speak, there are no two faces that are alike. God, God's creativity is, is absolutely... Oh, okay, we got to mute someone here. Who's our candidate to be muted? Okay, Lynn, Lynn, please mute yourself. Okay. But when it comes to God's creativity, God's creativity is absolutely endless. Like, no two things are alike. So, so God invests each person, each one of his different creations, with different abilities. Now, there's something interesting just about human nature, which is, do you know what it is that you like to do? Things that you're good at. 
because people like the feeling of success. So like, for instance, if you're good at drawing pictures and people go, hey, that's a nice picture, that's positive reinforcement and then you wanna draw more pictures. If you write a good paper in class or you, you get good marks in class, you go, hey, I'm good at studying. Maybe I'll continue to study and become a professor or something like that. So in other words, you gravitate toward what you're good at because that's what you enjoy doing for the most part. So ask yourself, in other words, you can ask yourself, what are your unique talents? But some, that can be a hard question for a person to answer, for some people. But I'm giving you a shortcut to answering that question. Ask yourself, what is it that you enjoy doing? Because that will be a, 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 an even truer answer to your question of what it is that that's special about you. And then take, once you've identified what those things that you enjoy doing are, figure out how can I take that one thing or that few things and take it to the next? In other words, how can I use it to benefit other people? How can I use it to benefit the world? Because some people get stuck. They just say to themselves, well, I'm good at this. How can I make money off of it? And by the way, that's not a bad question, but that's not what we're discussing right now. Because <laughs> you also got to pay the rent. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a real thing. But that's, that's not our topic right now. If you're really talking about making the best version of yourself, well, remember, we all share the same soul. So you're not just you. You are also you, but you are also an expression of the greater whole, which means that if you want to make the best version of you, the best version of you is, is also benefiting the greater whole. Do you understand? So you can't be all you unless you're taking that part of you that's benefiting the entire world. So getting back to the practical steps now, figure out what you love doing and then figure out how you can use those things to benefit other people. And that will now put you on a track of being the best version of yourself. Okay? And, and also, this is something that's not always going to be obvious. So feel very comfortable sitting down with someone wise and trying to work it out. With, and you, you have to pick someone wise. And I'm going to read you, I have a, a book that God willing, in the right time, will come out to the world or whoever wants to read it. But I want to read you a short chapter from this book. It's called The Bookmark. Be careful around the unwise. They'll take a big idea and turn it into a small one. Not because they're bad people, but because their vision is narrow. If you give them a plane ticket, they'll thank you and use it as a bookmark, never understanding that it could have taken them to a faraway place. That's it. People see one thing and they think it's something else. They think it's small. You know, you know, you try to give someone Shabbos and they think you're handing them a bucket of responsibilities and a guilt trip. <laughs> and they have no idea what Shabbos is. <laughs> they have no idea you're giving them the ultimate gift. Something that's going to take them to another world once a week. 
where all their problems are gone. Okay. It says that God loves the requests. God loves the prayers of the tzaddikim. And, and, and let, me, let me use that to try to explain one of, for me personally, one of the most perplexing teachings, right? You know, it says that one of the reasons, right, one of the reasons, it's a classic, classic Torah teaching right now, that God didn't bless Abraham and Sarah with a child sooner. You ready for this? It's going to sound crazy, but we're going to explain it. Is because God loves the prayers of the tzaddikim. So that can be really misunderstood. You mean I'm being tortured so that I can pray to God more? Like what? No, that's not what it means. It just means that when we go to him with our heartfelt requests, that he loves that. And that the more important something is to us, the more we come to him about the important stuff and the little stuff too. You know when you're close to God, you want to you know a litmus test that you can apply to yourself in your own life. Here's a test of whether or not you're really close to God. Are you praying for the little things? Not just the big things. And you should know that this is one of the foundations of, of how Rebbe Nath counsels his, all of us, his Hasidim, how to connect to God. And the example that he gives is, I don't know if it was himself or his child, that he broke his shoelace and he, he prayed to God for a new shoelace. <laughs> and he said to one of his chassidim one time, one of his chassidim made a request and he, he, he said, and it was a small request. He said, did you, did you daven to Hashem first for the request? He said, you know who gets things without asking for them? Animals. Animals get things without asking for them. But one of the glories of a human being is that we can pray to God before we receive something. And he's talking about the smallest things. Can you imagine? Like if someone were really to live a life of emes, a life of truth, if they were sitting at, say, the Shabbos table and they want someone to pass them the challah, they would first pray to God, please God. Bless me with challah, please God. And then the person hands them the challah. Because the truth is, is that when the person hands them the challah, that's just God handing them the challah anyway, right? So did you receive it without praying for it first? And then he admonished, you ready for this? He admonished his chassid and he said, are you too good to pray for something before you receive it? That it's beneath you to pray for a shoelace before you receive it. Like, God, okay, when we're talking about some cash, I'll pray for some cash before you give it to me. Right? A new car, I'll pray for a new car before you give it to me. But a sandwich at the sandwich shop, I have to pray for that? I don't know. I'm a little too important for that. But that's delusion. That's delusion. You know, the Kutzka Rebbe says regarding the Beis Amigdash, and the rebuilding of the Beis Amigdash, especially, you know, we're not in that period of the year. Really, every day is, that, is the period of that year. You know, Rabbi Avigdor Miller wrote that everyone at some point, this is a very important thing that I'm telling you right now. Rabbi Miller, Allah said, 
that there's certain things a person should do every single day. And one of them is sitting on the floor and praying for the Beis HaMikdash, that it should be rebuilt, that the Holy Temple in Jerusalem should be rebuilt. Now, classically, we do that at Chatzot, meaning at midnight. Sometimes midnight is 1 a.m., sometimes it's 11, 11 p.m. plus, depending on the time of the year. That's Chatzot, and there's, there's actually a, a, a service that's done, you know, this isn't as well known, but it's, it's very much a Torah practice. It's called, which means, you know, the fixing of this, this, this special time. The, the gates are really open at this time. David Amelech would wake up in the, in the middle of the night. The, 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 the Gomorrah records that he, he would put his harp over his bed and a wind would come in and it would strum the, the chords of his harp and it would wake him up. He had like this holy alarm clock. And this is how the book of Psalms was written. He would pray to God, please God, let me hear the prayers of all of Israel. And God would take him up into the heavens and he would listen to the prayers of all of Israel and he would write them down. And that's how the book of Psalms was written. Can you imagine? But this is, this is a, a, a very special holy time. Chatzot. But anyway, the, the breakthrough idea that I'm sharing with you from Rabbi Miller is, is that for those of us, and you know, it's probably most of us who aren't at that place where we're waking up in the middle of the night, for many of us, to sit on the floor. So sit, sit at 2 p.m. Just at some point during the day, sit on the floor and pray. Pray for the rebuilding of the Holy Temple in Israel. But let me tell you why, why this is so important. And so just to tell you what the Kutzka Rebbe said, he said, you know, everyone's got to be crying during the three weeks or on Tisha B'Av. And he says, you're either crying for the temple or you're crying because you're not able to cry for the temple. Do you hear that? If you're not brokenhearted, at least be brokenhearted over the fact that you're not brokenhearted. I'm going to say that again. If you're not actually brokenhearted, at least be brokenhearted over the fact that you're not brokenhearted. And what does it mean to be brokenhearted anyway? So the Katskarebi says there's no heart that's so full like a broken heart. So that's misunderstood by a lot of people. They think, oh, brokenhearted, you just kind of associated that, associate that with, you know, romance gone bad. He broke my heart. She broke my heart. Miserable. <laughs> so that's my goal. Misery. I want to be, I want to be miserable. No, that's, that's not what it is. A broken, why is a broken heart a full heart? Because a full heart in, the, in this context, in this context, means that you think you're independent of God. That's what it means. That means, you know what, God, I'm doing fine just on my own. And, you know, sometimes I have thoughts of you because that's, that makes me feel even better. Because now not only am I a completely independent person, but also I'm a good guy because I'm a little bit religious, right? I'm thinking about you too. <laughs> but mostly it's just a garnish on my own ego. But a broken heart means that I'm recognizing the emiss. I'm recognizing the truth of the truth of the world which is that I'm an emanation of you, God. That I'm not complete without you. See, we have this idea with the, with the half coin, with the half shekel, right? 
God's the other half. Each of us is the other half. This idea that somehow I am an island is just, it's just, it's not just foolishness. It's a lie. It's a lie. We so need each other. That's the concept of a broken heart. So why is this a very important practice to sit on the floor at some point during the day, every day, every day, even Shabbos, even Shabbos and Yantav. You see, in the service called Tikkun Chatzot, which I referred to, which is the formal way of doing this, there's something called, there are two parts to the service. There's Tikkun Rachel and Tikkun Leah. And even, so you would say both parts during a normal day. And on Shabbos, you say, you say one of the two parts still, okay? So this is, this is a, this is a seven-day-a-week avoda. And the reason why I'm bringing it up right now is because we need reminders that what we have around us is not all there is and not all there's going to be. We need reminders that what's around us is not all there is and is not all that's going to be. And when you, when you sit on the ground, that's like when Abraham Avinu sat at the opening of his tent. You know what that means? That he sat at the opening of his tent, that he realized that there's a future that's in front of him, that's in front of all of us, which is a whole nother dimension. Because your eyes can brainwash you. Everything goes wrong when we eat from the tree of knowledge. And we've explained it many, many times. Torah is not anti-knowledge, God forbid. It's Torah is the repository of knowledge. So, so why does everything go wrong when we eat from the tree of knowledge? Because we didn't eat from the tree of life. One of my favorite teachings from the Kutzker Rebbe is that it's a very great miracle to resurrect the dead, but it's an even greater miracle to resurrect the living. And I, I thought about that for many years. And, and, and I, I, this thought came to me. Why is, it, why is that the case? Why is that the case that it's so much harder to resurrect the living than the dead? And, and I thought to myself, because you don't have to ask the permission from the dead. <laughs> they don't have to be cooperative. <laughs> the living have to be cooperative. <laughs> they have to want to come back to life. And that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a giant assumption. You know? The dead are much more cooperative. And I'll tell you something deep. I'll tell you something very deep. And I heard this from Rabbi Beryl Wine. When it comes to transferring a grave, and this is, believe it or not, this is actually a relevant topic in Jewish law. Like, for instance, there are people who are buried outside of Israel, and sometimes the families want to move them to Israel. And by the way, there's an ongoing discussion with, right, which is in the Ukraine right now, you know, and, and there, there's been a movement, at least among some people, to say, hey, why don't we just move his grave to Israel? 
So, so you actually see this conversation going on, and it's it's it seems like a very esoteric question of Jewish law: Can you transfer a grave? But believe it or not, it it actually has practical relevance today and for many families. And the point is, is that halachically speaking, according to Jewish law, it's very difficult to to allow permission to transfer a grave. And now listen to this. Listen to this. And I, again, I heard this from Rabbi Beryl Wine. Why did the rabbis make it so difficult to give permission for this? And you ready for this? Because when the coffin is uncovered, the person, the soul in the coffin thinks that the redemption has come, that it's come time for the resurrection of the dead. And when the, when the soul realizes that's not the case, it undergoes a tremendous degree of pain. And to save the soul that level of disappointment, we don't, we don't, we don't put it, the soul through that process unless it's absolutely necessary. Isn't that something? And once you eat from the tree of life, then you can eat from the tree of knowledge. You know why it's got to go in that order and why everything goes south, everything goes wrong when we reversed the order, which we did, which explains the situation better than anything can explain it that we're in right now? It means we think we know everything when we absolutely don't. But we're convinced that we know everything when we absolutely don't. And the example that I always like to give is, you know how children think they know more than their parents? Right? Like... Like a child says, oh, this candy bar is so delicious. And then tells you, you know what would be even better? If I ate 30 candy bars. (laughs) And the parent says, no, no, no. If you eat 30 candy bars, you're going to get a stomach ache. And the child goes, dad, where did I lose you? (laughs) If one candy bar is delicious, 30x is 30 times more delicious. Do you get it now? Do you want me to say it again more slowly? And the father's like, you don't get it. You don't understand. And the kid is like, dad, really? I, one day, one day, right? Like the famous Mark Twain quote, which is that he can't believe how much his dad learned during the years that he went away to college. <laughs> he came back. His father was so smart. How'd that happen? So that's us. When we eat from the tree of knowledge before we eat from the tree of life, we think we know things that we don't know. First, you have to experience the broadness of life. Now you have a vessel to hold the knowledge. And by the way, we were destined to eat from the tree of knowledge. And I've heard it in different ways that first we had to eat from the tree of life or it was going to be something that we could eat on Shabbos, which also means after the tree of life. But in every version, we were supposed to eat from it. It's not God. God is not trying to keep us in ignorance. There are religions, by the way, that that try to control people and they, they, they try to keep them in ignorance as a way of subjugating them. And it's this, you know, just it's why religion has such a bad name in, in so many quarters of the world, because because the they're tyrants. These 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 leaders are tyrants. And they're looking to crush people's spirits, not, not, not liberate them. 
But that's not Torah. And, and I'll give you a, a proof of it, which is we just started a new book of the Torah, Sefer Vayikra. And Sefer Vayikra goes in excruciating detail how to bring all of the sacrifices, all the offerings to God to fix all the different problems that can come into our lives. We did this wrong, we did that wrong, or we want to give thanks or whatever it is. And the Torah tells us exactly how it's done. Now, for most people, when they read it, it's like they're so bogged down in the details and it seems so like, like, what does this have to do with me? That they're missing one of the fundamental points that's going on, which is that all of the secrets are being revealed. <laughs> in every other religion in world history, this was the provenance of the secret sect, the secret cabal of the priests who held on to this knowledge and didn't share it with the populace so that they could control the populace. Do you, do you understand? The Torah is like, here it is, guys. Here it is. Here's what you do. Here's exactly how it's done. Here's the recipe for return. Here it is. That, that's radical. That's, that's radical. All, everything is being revealed and shared. So, so that's what it is. We can't give the penny back. <laughs> when things are going right in our life, don't, don't just say, okay, I got this month's rent, or okay, I got a belly full of food. We've got to keep on driving because there's so much more ahead for us. You know, I'll tell you something unbelievable. I can't even believe this. I read it. It, it was, who was it written by? Who was it written by? It was written by a student of Elie Wiesel. And he recorded that he was living at the time in Vienna. And for a short period of time in Vienna, Theodor Herzl and Sigmund Freud were both living in Vienna. Okay? As you know, Theodor Herzl is the founder of the State of Israel. Although that's a, an amazing story in itself because he didn't live to see the establishment of the state of Israel. But he single-mindedly drove the campaign worldwide for the creation of a state of Israel. This is before World War II. And the last big world Zionist conference like, didn't culminate with the establishment of the state of Israel, and he died thinking that he was a failure in this regard. Can you imagine? We don't know what results and what mushrooms and what the domino effects of all of our efforts. We don't know. We don't have the full picture. You know, one of the amazing things is after 120, after a person ascends to the next world, they're judged. All the things you did and all the things you did. All right. And by the way, such an important teaching from, from Rabbi Green. It was so important to me. I said it over in my father's eulogy. Okay, so that shows you how important it was to me. Rabbi Green asks, what are you? Are you, are you a body or are you a soul? And he says, you're not a body because you leave your body behind after 120. 
And he says, you're not a soul because your soul is a piece of God. So if you're not a body and you're not a soul. And the answer is you are the sum total of the decisions you make during your lifetime. What is it that stands before the heavenly court at the end of our lives? The sum total of the decisions that you made. That's who you are. Okay? So now listen to this. There's a judgment at the end of our lifetimes. And there is a judgment at the time of the resurrection of the dead. And are you ready for this? What is the, you say, well, what do they got to judge me again for? They already judged me. At the end of my life, they already judged me. What was the ripple effect of your deeds throughout the generations leading up to the coming of Mashiach? How's that for a thought? You help this person, and because you helped this person, this person got married and had kids. What went on with those kids? <laughs> That's all because you introduced these two people and they got married. Well, what was the result of that? You got this guy a job. What was the result of that? You, you gave someone encouraging words when they were ready to give up. What was the result of that? Right? You didn't yell at someone even though you were super frustrated. Which means they didn't get into a bad mood and didn't get depressed. Which means they were able to continue what they were doing. What was the result of what they were able to continue to do? <laughs> All the ripple effects from our actions throughout the generations. Not just during our lifetime. Can you imagine what an exalted accountant God is? That he's able to measure, and, and we're talking about trillions of accounts. And you yourself, you ready for this? You yourself are the ripple effect of someone else from generations ago. <laughs> That's on their tab. Your life is on their tab. What kind of accounting is this? How can anybody be such an accountant? Because God's das, God's knowledge is infinite. There's no end to it. We've got to think bigger. Chavra, we've got to think bigger. We've got to think bigger. We can't forget about what's ahead, about what's coming. You think like God is the ultimate, the ultimate everything, right? You think God is satisfied that he created a world where people are just killing each other for no reason? Where people just hate each other for no reason? You think he was like, mm, good enough, <laughs> moving on, on to the next universe. It could, could such a thought occur to you that God, who the whole world is made out of God, and God, of course, exists dimensions beyond this world. You think God is satisfied with the state of this world? Good enough. All right. We'll put that one on the shelf. Didn't quite work out the way I had in mind. <laughs> ah, that's a drag. All right. We try again with another world. God's not giving up on this world. God hasn't stopped creating and recreating this world. And somehow we're on the front lines. We're the players. I heard Reb Shlomo say in the name of Rebbe Nachman of Breslov, do you know why 
Adam Arishon ate from the tree of knowledge? Because he didn't, he didn't take himself seriously enough. There's a fine line between treating our great ones with the proper respect and with mythologizing them. Let me, let me explain to you what I mean, because I'm talking about you and me right now, okay? When we treat them with respect, then, then that's good. That's good. When we mythologize them, you, you could say, well, that's the ultimate respect, isn't it? I mean, we're just talking about how just beyond these individuals were. Well, that's where it gets tricky. Because there's a hidden message when we mythologize them. And that hidden message is, that's for them and not for me. Because I'm not capable of that. And those things should not be expected from me. Famously, Reb Zusha, one of the greatest Hasidic masters said, I'm not afraid when I go up to, you know, the next world, that they're going to say to me, Zusha, why weren't you like Moshe Rabbeinu? Why weren't you like Moses? I'm not afraid they're going to ask me that. What I'm terrified of, terrified, is when they say to me, Zusha, why weren't you Zusha? You see, we can't afford to mythologize people because when we do that, we stop expecting things from ourselves. <coughs> right now, the mantle of history has been handed to us. That's the crazy thing. Like right now, as the world is being created and recreated and recreated and driving toward the next opening, the next level, the next era. You know who that's most relevant to? Kind of to Abraham, kind of to Yitzchak, kind of to Yaakov, kind of to Sarah, kind of to Rivka, kind of to Leah, kind of to Rachel, but mostly to you and me. Because we're the ones who are here right now. That's kind of crazy, right? That's kind of crazy. Because in our lack of understanding of what it means to be alive, in what it means to be in this dynamic construct called reality, where everything, the world is being created and recreated, we right now, you and me, are the stars of the show. Now you say, well, you know, if I was the executive producer, I never would have cast myself for that role because clearly I'm not, I'm not them. I, I know what greatness is and I'm not yet. Yet. And I never would have cast me for that role. But guess what? The executive producer, right? Hashem Yisbarach, God the Blessed One, he did cast you. And he also made you. And he also knows what your role is. And he also knows what your potential is. And it's his idea. It's not your idea. And he believes in you. And he set up this entire situation for you right now. And now. And now. And now. Right? Because everything is one second at a time. And you say, well, I haven't done it up until now. And now. And now. But there's a new now every single second. And what difference does it make if you didn't do it up until now? Because now there's a new now. Okay. Thanks for listening. 
We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.